Dolomiti Sound Stories troviamo davanti a un maso di un contadino autosufficiente. So we are standing in front of a farmer's farm which is run independently and these farmers work on the fields and also with animals and with all of the products that come from those fields and animals and doing so they take care of their families. My name is Evi Weissteiner and now we are in front of the Teodone Ethnographic Museum and we are right in the middle of some of these farms and now I will tell you a bit more about them today. So a farm, in order to explain exactly what a farm is, it's a block of all the buildings and areas for the animals and people who make up that farm. For example, there is the main house for the people, but there is also the stable, the hay barn, the animals, the forest, and all of the fields and the mill, and the, the oven. There are lots of buildings that make up a farm that aren't exactly included in the main house. So the farms could belong to the farmers, but the land, however, didn't ever belong to the farms, but rather to the landowners. The landowners could be nobles or even the church, sometimes a monastery, for example. And the farmers would always have to make a contribution to the landowners. In the area of Valvenosta, there is still an ancient Roman law which divided up the farms and even the land between many people because all of the men had the same right to an inheritance. Here in our area, however, in the Val Pusteria, there was the law of the only man of the house who would receive the farm, and the others in the family would not receive the farm, but they had the right to stay on the farm uh, up until they got married or even up until death. And if they didn't get married, naturally they helped to do the work. But they also had the right to stay there and live on the farm. The motivation is naturally that if a piece of land is divided up many times, then no single family can live there. And so here, in our areas, the farms remained as a unity, whereas in the Valvenosta area, there are still really small farms and little pieces of land that still exist, because over there they follow a different law. We move closer now to a, a farmer or with a farm that is too small to be autosufficient and this means that it has to work a little bit more. 
It used to have an office in the cellar that made wooden tires. The office didn't make the wooden tires, but the farmer did. By doing so, he could support the family because the stable was too small. Even the house was too small and all of the surrounding land was not enough to be able to support the family with this tiny farm. I grew up with my grandmother because my mum had some rooms that she rented and she didn't have much time for us three children and so she took us to grandma. The farm was really small. It, it had a pig, a few chickens, the eggs, and just a couple of cows for the milk. We made butter and also cheese. On the farm, we didn't have any electricity. There was no hot water. And we all slept together in a room that was quite unusual. Even breakfast wasn't bread and butter. No, it was a soup that was called prensuppe. And it was an unusual soup because the flour is cooked first in a pan and not for too long, otherwise it becomes too dark. Then you add water, throw in some potatoes and let it boil and add just a bit of salt and cumin. And this was breakfast. Fantastic. Yes, we were always super happy to eat this soup in the morning. So there was my grandfather who we didn't see much of because he was a hunter and so he was always out and about. But my grandmother was always at home with her blue apron on and she was always in the kitchen making bread, washing up. And afterwards she would take us up to the mountain cottage and we would look after the cows. We'd cut the grass too, everything by hand and on very steep hills. But this was our sport, very active. No TV, so we played cards, we talked a lot. And then you went to bed with the chickens and you rose with the chickens. And on Sunday, on Sunday, we had a bigger meal, a lot more. And we had meat just once a week. It was all very meager after that. But now everything has changed. We have an enormous well-being. The happiness, I think, was more in the years before. And these are some wonderful memories. We are going into the Kleinhäusler-Stub. So now we're inside the Kleinstube on this farm which was too small and you can even see that the Stube is very small. The Stube is always the most important room in all of the farms because it's the only room that is heated without smoke. Even in the kitchen there was a fire because you cooked on the open fire but there there was so much smoke that it really couldn't be there. 
And so the social life of the family back then happened here in the Stube. And the idea is always that there is a heater in the corner and the heater works from outside or from the kitchen or from the corridor. So the smoke stays there and the Stube is well heated. Then, in the corner, diagonally from the heater, there is always a table, a square table, because the family would eat from one pan and not on plates. And the pan was always in the middle of the table, so everyone had to come. If the table was rectangular, then people would go hungry at lunch or at dinner. Other things that were always present in the Stube were religious fixtures. For example, there was the corner of God behind the table. There was always a cross. And there they would often put pictures of dear members of the family who had passed away, or even other objects that were precious to the family. Then there were also these little lockers along the wall. And there they would keep documents, all the most important things belonging to the farm but also a bottle of grappa, some glasses and a pack of cards to play with. Faccio adesso il rumore che faceva la grommel con la grommel. Now I'm making the noise that the la gromme makes. Le gromme was a large knife that was kept or fixed to one side in a wooden box. And so in this box you could put an old loaf of bread and then with this same knife that was fixed there you could cut the bread. The bread was hard and dry and with this tool you could cut the pieces and then you could put these in hot milk or in a warm soup. And with this you could eat bread all year long. So we ate everything, obviously, that we produced from the fields, but also what the animals gave us. And so lots of dairy produce, milk, but also butter and cheese. And then a lot of things with the grain, the flour, also with the vegetables. Not much, because the only vegetable you could conserve was krauti. So the krauti was the only vegetable or vitamin that you could eat until it was spring. And then you were happy because there were the first vegetables that sprouted again in the garden. Fruit, there was a little bit of fruit, apples, pears, prunes, and these could then be dried. But there wasn't really much and they didn't last all winter. Fresh meat, we rarely had that. The canedeli, the bread gnocchi on feast days, had speck as an ingredient in them. The canedeli during the week had much less extravagant ingredients in them. Water was very important in order to build a farm. Naturally, without water, you couldn't get by. 
Water was also used as a method for working, for example, in all of the mills. So the water helped keep the work less tiring for everyone. There are different mills for flour and for grain, but also for a workshop for the ironmonger to produce the laden. So there are lots of different types of mills. So now we're in front of our Aries plumber, which is an automatic water pump. And the Aries plumbers are the most simple machines to pump up the water without using electricity or even fuel. And it serves to bring the water up to a higher level. This idea of the autosufficient farmer was still around almost up until the Second World War, even if a bit earlier in some areas of the country. A kind of monoculture had begun, for example, in producing apples, potatoes and Grand Turco flour. Nowadays, there are some people who have changed their minds, who have also seen that monoculture is a problem also for the earth, but also for the insects that damage the produce. And so they have started again to live a life almost like those of the autosufficient farmers of whom we have talked about today. If in some valleys the culture of the farm has certainly developed, in others, rather, they have opted for a bit of a different system. A system where the property is a collective property, where everyone exercises their own rights and duties, but they don't have a private property inside these territories. This is the case, for example, when it comes to the rules in the Ampetsan region, a millennial institution, owner of a great part of the territories in the Ampetsan Valley, and for whom many years has run these territories according to a very precise criteria. It's a collective property run by those who have lived for generations in these valleys and who abide by the rules and rights, and which maintains within it the concept of sustainability. We get what we need from these territories in order to survive, not so much for getting rich, or maybe it was like that in the past, but enough to be able to live with dignity. Un altro esempio di comunità che ha saputo nei secoli autogestirsi. Another example of a community that we have come to know over the centuries that knew how to run itself 
and to govern itself, is represented by the wonderful community of Fiemme. We are in Cavalese and we are in the symbolic point of this institution, the Banque de la Raison building, a kind of open-air parliament with a stone table in the centre and two rows of chairs going around it. This is where the decisions were made by the whole community. To the sides, there are four pluricircular trees that perhaps look after the history and the decisions of this population that has known how to run itself and to govern itself for a very long time and that still keeps alive this institution. That's the Banco della Raison over there. Ecco, queste sono dette pietre del giudizio. These stones are called the stones of judgment. Public meetings used to be held here because there were no laws on transparency yet, but the people had and could take part in these meetings for the election of the Scario, who was the president of the magnificent community to manage public affairs. Once a year, the appointment of the Scario was renewed, so there was a democracy that was always run in open-air places. I'm Mauro Gilmozzi. I'm the scario of the magnificent community of Fiemme. The scario is essentially the president of the board of directors of the magnificent community, which in turn administers the assets of the neighbors of Fiemme. That means of the inhabitants of Fiemme. So the magnificent community of Fiemme administers the assets but these assets actually belong to the neighbors. This is a very important feature, because this is actually a collective state property, through and through, so to speak. The assets don't belong to one individual, but to everyone who lives in the valley. This culture of building relationships, of being together, dates back to the presence of the Reti. So we're talking about the 6th century BC. That's when there were the leaders of the various villages around here, around the valleys. And they used to decide what to do together. They represented the first forms of second-level cooperation. Everyone lived alone in their own house and then got together here. And this is where the elections were held, but the traditional festivals and the market also took place here. This was a place to exchange animals and products. This was the center, the heart, the parish of a very ancient system. The matter of the common good defines the culture and the history of all our people. Because in the end, the assets here are truly public, even now. And therefore, those who use them do so on the basis of rules which allowed everyone to be able to enjoy the few fruits that the land gave.
però insomma le foreste hanno rappresentato e rappresentano tuttora un elemento But the forests represented and still represent not only a distinctive but also the economic factor that keeps the whole community together. We have to wait until 11-11 to see the magnificent community legitimated by the feudal state. That's when it also assigned certain powers to the community. But doing so, it also took away its prerogatives. That means that before the magnificent community was completely independent, well now it's part of a feud. So it has to be held accountable to a prince-bishop, losing a bit of its power. This situation lasts 700 years. Then, after the French Revolution, the feudal period comes to an end. Princes, bishops, counts and barons disappear. Everything now is linked to the new architecture. Municipalities and districts are born. And then, as always, after the wars, geopolitics plays a crucial role. Here we've moved from a Bavarian government to a French one. But immediately afterwards, we were assigned to Austria. We enter the Europe of empires, which then becomes the Europe of nations, and therefore the Europe of wars. We enter Europe with Austria, so for a hundred years, the magnificent community has been part of the Austrian Empire. But it hasn't the autonomy it used to have back then. Now it's structured on a new form with a strong economic power, as woods have always represented an important element, but it loses public powers assigned to the municipalities or other institutions. Then we enter the more contemporary era, in which we face two wars, the short century, 100 years ruled by Austria, and another 50 years between fascism and two wars, during which the magnificent community is as if on standby, and only after some sentences of the Court of Cassation the foundations of its new role are established. Today, the community is still autonomous. It administers a heritage of 20,000 hectares that belong to its neighbors, so it's both collective and private property, the most important one of the Alps and of the country. It has 13,000 hectares of forests, around 6,000 hectares of meadows and pastures, 20 alpine huts, more or less, 200 cabins. All the peaks of Lagorai that you see from here belong to the community. So the magnificent community still plays a relevant role within the Val di Fiemme, if only to protect springs, to prevent the risks of landslides, to promote new activities linked to forest management and therefore also to saving CO2, because CO2 can be stored inside a growing tree if you manage it in a sustainable way. In short, between old and new roles, the magnificent community is still here and plays an important role. What I just told you summarizes 2,000 years of history in five minutes. Thank you. 
Dolomiti Sound Stories is a voice production for Dolomiti Superski. Narrator Voices, Margherita Menardi and Ulrike Innerkofler. Director, Gianluca Stazzi and Paolo Barberi. Original music, Gianluigi Gallo. Sound and post-production, Gianluca Stazzi. Editing and additional post-production, Alessio Abeli. Editorial support, Elisa Cozzolino. Producers, Andrea Maltagliati and Giovanna Surace. English dubbers, Beth McCritton and Marco Quaglia.